What an introduction to this guy that we got today. Hi, guys. This is Jeff Fry with the She Gone Podcast, and Thrill is Gone. What a song to uh, to bring this guy, one of my old teammates, in. Um, this guy was a, uh, a hell of a baseball player, gamer, played the game like his hair was on fire, left it out there every day, and was uh, you know really instrumental in help, helping teach me how to be a professional. Welcome to the She Gone Podcast, my old teammate and good friend, Will Clark. What's up, Thrill? Fried Daddy, how you doing, my friend? I'm good, man. I'm good. I mean, we had to open the show with The Thrill Is Gone, right? Yeah, you got that right. So now, the whole the whole story behind that was uh, my rookie year, uh, Vita Blue was my locker mate. He was in the locker next to me, and Vita's from Louisiana, too, as well, and uh he said, "Hey man, you got a you got an answer machine?" I go, "Yeah, I got an answer machine." And so he handed me the tape of "The Thrill Is Gone" by BB King, and so I put it on my answer machine. And we went on a, a East Coast trip. We were gone about ten days. I come back, I got like seventy two missed calls, and it was all my idiot friends going, "Hey dude, didn't want anything, just wanted to listen to the song," and they'd hang up on me. <laughs> so I had to take the I had to take the recording off because my idiot friends kept calling up. So where did where did the nickname Thrill come from? So my rookie year, uh, we were in spring training, and Bob Brenly and Mike Kruko came up with it because uh, I was kind of setting the, the Cactus League on fire, and, and, and I don't know. They said something about he just keeps thrilling us, and the thrill will the thrill, and it rhymed, and it just stuck. And, uh, you know, till this day, I think it's I think it's an awesome nickname, and then uh, you know there's so many people that don't even call me Will anymore. You could just call me Thrill or Hey Thrill or something like that. Ah, oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. I had a few nicknames uh, coming up through the college and the minor leagues. Uh, I think one of the le- my least favorite was Weasel, uh, <laughs> and Dougie Witt used to call me that, and uh, I got that nickname because my teammate in Butte, Montana. Um, Asked me one night we had an off one day we had an off day and we had a bottle of Mad Dog Twenty Twenty and halfway gone and he says how much do you give me if I down the rest of this and I said five bucks and he and he slammed it down and uh, he asked for his five bucks I said I'm not giving you five dollars you idiot he goes oh you weasel you little weasel <laughs> <laughs> but most people call me Fry Daddy or Frito I got the nickname Frito when I was with the Red Sox Mike Stanley. Gave me that, but we hardly ever called each other by our real names. No, no. I mean, you know, that's that's the great part about baseball. I mean, you know, especially the older guys, they always they always gave you know people nicknames, and some of them stuck, some of them didn't stick. But then, you know, if it didn't stick, they'd give you another nickname. Or if you did something stupid on the field, you know, they gave you a nickname because of what you did stupid on the field, and. uh you know, it's 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 kind of funny. I mean, that's that's how baseball players are, and uh, you know, nicknames are a part of the sport, and it's it. I think it's fun myself. Uh, me too. And I, I was actually going through. Uh, I know we played together in '94, '95, and I was going through uh, the rosters of the t- of the guys we played with. Man, we had some freaking characters, big time. I, I, and every one of them almost had a nickname. I mean. Yep. If I say I'm gonna do a little test and I'm gonna say a nickname and you tell me which player it is. Okay? All right. Ripper. Oh, uh, that's Billy Ripkin, otherwise known as Riptard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Juan Gone. Juan Gone. Juan Gonzalez <laughs> could lay out some absolute pipe with a 35-inch P72. He hit some of the most god-awful home runs I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, Pawpaw. Oh, God. Roger Pavlik. Pawpaw. Walked around like uh, every bone in his body was hurting. He'd just gimp around the whole time. Uh, go out there. He was he was a right-handed pitcher that kind of threw across his body and, and dealt and was a big part of our team's, you know, getting on the winning track there in Texas. No doubt. Made an all-star team one year. Yep, uh, yep. Uh, this guy had a couple. I'm not sure what his nickname was. Um, when I left, but it was either Rojo or the Red Baron. Yeah, yeah, everybody was the Red Baron. Rusty Greer, uh, Rusty came up, you know, he was a rookie uh, right there about the same time you were, and uh, 
Rusty was was my locker mate in Texas. He sat on the other side of me, and you know, not only did we talk a lot of shop, but but I wore him out as a, as a rookie. So he uh, he learned the game pretty quick. One of the one of the better hitters uh, in Texas Ranger history, as far as what he could do. I mean, in three hundred hitter, hit ball over the yard. Uh, he actually, believe it or not, moved into the three slot in the lineup, and I moved from the three slot to the five slot. Really? Well, he was. Uh... He didn't really play near as long as you did, but I mean, when he played, I think eight or nine years. But he was pretty damn consistent. I know yep, that. yep, yep. And he he was one of the big reasons why Kenny Rogers uh, had that perfect game. Uh, he made a he made a diving stop there in, in the ninth inning to uh, to rob somebody of a of a base hit and uh, preserve the perfect game for Kenny Rogers. Yeah, I think it was uh, D. Sarcina. I think made the last. Yeah. I yep, I think you're right, Gary DeSarcina. Yeah, I was in the dugout. I didn't play that day, and I was probably more nervous in the ninth inning than any game I ever played in because I wanted <laughs> Kenny to get the perfect game so bad. <laughs> I walked up, uh, you know, I mean, you remember we had uh, Benji Gillett at shortstop, and, and Benji, you know, he'd wing that son of a gun over there to first base at about 95 miles an hour. I had no clue where it was going, you know, and – you know, I'd I'd have to pick a ball or two every day from Benji, and so I really worked really hard at it. And we're going into the ninth inning, and I walked up to Benji, and Benji couldn't even breathe. I mean, he had he had no clue. And I go, "Big boy," I said, "Take a few deep breaths. Take a few deep breaths." And he goes, "Okay." He goes, "Hey, hey, uh, I'm I'm nervous right now." I said, "I said, big boy." I said, "Everybody's nervous." I said, "But this is the time of the game where you want the ball." All right, you want the ball hit to you. And he goes, oh, okay, all right, all right. I said, and whatever you do, do not throw the ball high. If you're going to do anything, throw the ball low to me. I'll pick it for you. He goes, okay, and I'll be goddamn if the first ball in the ninth inning isn't hit to Benji Gill, and he comes up, and Jeff, his freaking eyeballs look like, like watermelons over there. I was like, oh, my God, where's this one going? And he threw me a 95-mile-an-hour jobby over to first base, and it just so happened he did it perfect. He gave me a nice little short hop, and I was able to pick it for him. And and I gave him a big thumbs up at shortstop, and he was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was like, no problem, my man, no problem. <laughs> I'm going to have to remind him of that next time I see him when he gets home. Uh, he's coaching uh, for the Angels right now, and uh, we play a lot of golf in the offseason. Oh, uh, good. Please tell him I said hi. I will. And I'm going to give you one more player. I know you'll know this one for sure. Uh, the doctor of defense. Mark McLemore. Right. Um, second baseman, played next to me for a few years over there. We actually uh, once – uh, Mickey Tittleton and, and Mike Henneman and those guys were gone. Mark McLemore and I were the uh, oldest guys on the, on the Rangers, and we were kind of the elder statesmen and kind of ran the clubhouse and the bus and all that sort of stuff. And Mark was just a fabulous teammate besides being a great player on the field. Yeah, and I see, I've seen Mark quite a bit. and We did some stuff on the, the Rangers pre- and post-game show, and uh, Mark knows the game, and he could just do it all. And, and yeah. funny story, Will. I, Somebody told me the other day that uh, a couple guys on the Rangers were taking their leads um, two and three feet behind the baseline at first base. And uh, and when asked about why they were doing that, said they had never really been taught in the minor leagues to, you know, the right way to steal bases. I'm like, well, who's teaching these guys player development? I said, well, I don't think we'll get Mark McLemore. Ask him to go down to the field. And in 30 minutes, he can teach him how to freaking take a lead and steal a base. That is, that's the truth there. I mean, you know, that's the one thing about <clears throat> our generation was we practiced, you know, all facets of the game. And, and you know, because you practice it as well, was the, was the base running aspect. You do not have to be the fastest guy on the field, but you have to run with your head up. You have to know who's a good thrower, who's not a good thrower. When can I take a base? When's not a good time to take a base? And, uh, you know, the little nuances like you're talking about, instead of taking your lead a few feet behind the baseline, get in the baseline because it's a shorter point from A to B. And, uh, you know, so, you know, there, there are little nuances of the game that veterans pass down to younger players. And that part of the game is kind of going by the wayside right now because 
a lot of the guys that are playing the game don't know it now. Yeah, and the guys teaching them in the minor leagues didn't play. It's it's hysterical. I mean, not not only that, but I mean, you know, there we you got guys who are major league, you know, hitting instructors and they never got out of A ball. It's like, dude, you never got out of A ball. How are you going to teach me how to hit? Right. You know, I got 7,000 at bats in the big leagues. You know, it's like, shut up. Move on, move out the way. Here. I'll teach you a few things because you've never been in this situation. And uh for me personally, you know, I mean, it's 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 tough to look at sometimes. Oh, me too. Me too. And, and back to the base running thing, I remember my first year in rookie ball or short season, you know, our manager was Bump Wills. First day, he took us around like the field. This is how you take your lead at first. You, you, you know, this is how you run through the base. This is how you take a turn. You go to take your lead, right, left, crossover, whatever. Always keep your head up. Then you go to second base. When you get two outs, you take a deeper lead. You walk in. And that whole routine would take 30 to 45 minutes. You do that every year in spring training again. I had uh, Davey Lopes was our one of our coaches when Kevin Kennedy was here. And we just, I mean, it was easy. It was, it was, this is what we're going to do. We're going to all be good base runners. You don't have, like you said, you don't have to be fast, but you're going to know what to do when you get on base. We're going to know that with two outs or no outs, you're not making the last out or the first out at third base. You yep. Know? When you're yep, at second you're right. base. You're right. You're and, second- and here's another thing, you know, you, you know, because, you know, it, it was part of our routine, but I mean, we took batting practice every day and then you're talking about in Texas where it's a thousand degrees sometimes in the summer. And now, you know, I look out there, you know, I work for the Giants now. I, I look out there and we'll have four or five guys taking batting practice. And so I'll go up to, you know, like the hitting guys and I'm like, hey, uh, where's the rest of the dudes? They go, oh, batting practice is optional. And I go, excuse me? Optional? Uh, we got eight guys in the lineup hitting below 220. It ought to be freaking mandatory. Mm-hmm. You know? And here's another thing. This, this is the common sense part. You know, you're going to play 81 games in this ballpark, all right? And and for Texas, you know, it's globe life, whatever. I want to go up there and I want to have as many at-bats, as many plate appearances, as many swings as I can in that ballpark, in that batter's box to figure out, okay, the ball goes this way. The ball doesn't do this over here. The ball does this, you know? And and I I just don't get it now with the, with the modern-day players. I don't either. And, you know, every batter's eye is different too. You know, you got to, you want to get in there. So when you step in the box, you feel like you've been in this position before. And yeah, exactly. Actually, and, and here's another thing you and I talked about this a lot. Jeff was, you know, you jump into batter's box and especially if you're, if you're in a little bit of a funk, you want to see what the ball is doing off the bat. You want to see, all right, am I slicing up underneath it? Am I getting up under it? Do, am I getting through it and hitting those god-awful two irons? You know, th- those kind of things. And you cannot see that when you're in the batting cage and just hitting into a net the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And I actually heard uh, one of the players um, on the Rangers has yet to take batting practice with the team this season. Oh, wow. <laughs> Can you Put it this way. Put it this way. That wouldn't be the case if you and I were around. I mean, seriously, has not taken batting practice on the field with his team, and we're in almost September. Yep, I get it. I get it. We got the we got the same kind of mentality over there. And then another thing too is, you know, hey, look, you know, I get, I get doing that, but we have to be consistent defensively. All right, because you're going to have the 0 for fours with with you know the two strikeouts, and nowadays it's four 0 for fours with four strikeouts. Mm-hmm. But you know you cannot have defensive lapses. You have to practice defense, and you know one of the big things that we did was you know not only did we get our ground balls, but then we took balls live off the bat, mm-hmm. you know, to get reads and how to go here and how to cut over here and stuff like that, and especially in the outfield. You know, you didn't have to shag every fly ball, but you had to catch a few to get, you know, your your depth correct or or your angles correct or whatever. Man, I, I watched some of our outfielders. They haven't been in the outfield for months. And yet at the same time, they're going to go out there on the field during the game and expect to perform at a high level. And they wonder why they can't get to certain balls. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, what our, bat- our BP was generally 45 minutes, 
three 15-minute groups, one you'd hit in, one uh, group you'd take your ground balls and whatever you're going to do every day might be different. You might turn double plays. You might take throws from you know, third base or first base and get your work in for at least 30 minutes. Then if you want to go out, shag a few BS in the outfield and relax. But we always did at least 30 minutes, two-thirds of batting practice was work. Totally agree. Totally agree. Because you're working not only on the offensive side, you're working on a defensive side. Then after you get your work out the way, all right, it's time to be a teammate. Let's go out here, like you said, and BS with the boys. And, hey, how you doing? How you feeling? You know, what's going on with the family? All, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, make everybody be part of the team, you know? Yeah. And I, I know that uh, I left right before you guys had um, more success here in Texas. And um, But I remember those teams we were on, man. We were a pretty tight-knit group. We did stuff together off the field. We'd have a few beers in the clubhouse, talk shop. Nobody was busting it out of the clubhouse in 10 minutes to go back to their room and play video games. We did stuff together. I mean, we were like a family. And that's oh, hell really yeah. fun. Hell yeah. And, it, you know, that was that was something, you know, that, that some of the veterans, you know, the Mickey Tettleton, Mike Hanneman's, myself, you know, guys like that that came maybe from other organizations. We brought some of the good stuff from the other organizations. And one of the big keys, and you know this just as much as I do, you know, you can't have those little clicks in the clubhouse. You can't have, you know, the white guys over here and the Latinos over there and black guys over there. So, I mean, we did mix it up. And it's like, hey, you know, come on, we're, we're going to dinner tonight. And, you know, invite half the team to go to dinner. And then the next night we go to dinner. Hey, invite the other half the team. And you know what? I mean, that was how, like you said, we became a big family. And when we got out on the field, we played together as a unit. Yep. Yep. I just thought of another nickname real fast for you. I know you'll know it. Redbone. Oh my God. Red. <laughs> Daryl Hamilton? No, no, no. He used to always say that a blooper was a blooky man. Oh God. Who are you talking about? Gary Reedus. Oh my. <laughs> believe it or not, believe it or not, I only was with Gary for like part of a year. I didn't even hear him be called Redbone. Yeah, well, we, Red. I think we mostly called him Red. Okay, he, right. he he was uh, came up with uh, instead of calling it a blooper or a Texas leaguer, he called it a blooky man. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> he was a great well, I can team. tell you, I can tell you one thing. What them bloopers right there save a lot of offers, partner. Uh, I take them every time. Yeah, Especially, even when you break your your favorite bat, if it dies a hero, you'll take it every time. Yes, indeed. So did so have you ever told everybody all the the uh the story about your bats? Oh yeah. Yeah. You told uh, them that? I, oh yeah. That I was planning on doing that today. So Jeff Jeff Fry, ladies and gentlemen, uh he was, you know, first, second year player. And, you know, we had a rule that you had to pick up your bats around a batting cage. And uh, you know, you, you didn't want people stepping on the bats and maybe twisting an ankle, stuff like that. Plus, it was, you know, hey, look, you take care of your own equipment. And so uh, once or twice, there were bats laying around the batting cage. They had the name Jeff Fry written on them. So I'd turn them around and uh, bash them up against the batting cage and break the bats. And uh, our host here, Jeff Fry, comes up to me and goes, hey, man, you're breaking all my bats. I'm like, I told you there's a, there's a rule. I'm not breaking my ankle because you're lazy. And so Jeffrey, I figured it out. I got to give you props. You like, you start taking care of your equipment. We didn't have any problems at all. No big deal. So you fast forward a little bit. And then all of a sudden Jeff's in uh, Boston and uh, we come into Boston. And when, when you're the visiting team, you, you hit after the home team. And I walk up there and sure enough, there's a Jeff Fry bat laying on the ground right by the cage. And uh, I picked it up. I broke it. And uh, I think you got a base hit that night and you came down to first base and you go, Thrill, did you break my bat again? I go, yep. <laughs> he goes, oh, man. And then you picked up the bats the rest of the time we were there. Oh, I'm so mad. I remember. I remember. Uh, I think I was hitting second and I went, you know, a lot. I, I was one of those guys that I wanted to use the actual bat that I was going to use in the game a little bit in BP. I wouldn't wear it out every day, but I wanted to feel the actual bat. So the bat that I used in BP that day, I went to get it out of the bat rack, and I looked, and it was cracked. And I was like, what happened to my freaking bat? And I, start, I was looking around the dugout. I was like, anybody know what happened to this bat? 
and Will Cordero called me down. And he goes, yeah, Juan Gonzalez told me that Will Clark broke it. I was like, mother. <laughs> and actually, I got to base on base three times that night because I remember because I was so mad at you. I was like, I'm going to freaking go down there and let him know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> hey, season. that was the rule. You broke the rule, Jack. I know, man. You had to pay the penalty. We had we used to have some rules back then that, that uh, there was uh, you didn't break them or you suffered the consequences. There you go. As there a pitcher, you you can, if you gave it up and came out during the middle of the inning, you didn't dare go up to the clubhouse before the inning was over. Now, no, you did not. No, you did water. not. Hey, look, you know that's that's the thing. You know, hey, look, if if you had and and this was our rule and and you knew it because we talked about it in the bag of the plane. If you had a rough go of things as a starting pitcher, all right, you did not come off the field and take it up into the clubhouse while my butt is still out on the field trying to battle and get a W and get you off the hook. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you if you want to be that kind of person, a self-centered type of person, you're not good for this team. But if you want to be a teammate and stay and root for the guys who are still pulling for you, are still going to battle for you, well, then guess what? You're a teammate, and I'm going to play for you every day. Yeah, it's just all, all we ask is that you stay in the dugout till the inning's over. That's it. Yep. That's not that hard. Yep. Well, you are uh, correct, my friend. I, uh, I guess it was about, I don't know if it was uh, two or three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, where uh, you had a special trip to back to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, to get your number retired. Uh, by the San Francisco Giants, number 22. That had to be a pretty special day. You know what, Jeff? That was absolutely amazing. I mean, you know, I mean, I can't I can't tell you how special it was for me because, you know, it was the organization that I came up with. It was the organization that, I, you know, I, I figured out how to be a pro, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. And uh, it was the organization where, uh, you know, they brought me back. And uh, now I'm still part of that organization. And, you know, you know, as you well know, because because, you know, of it of being a ranger, you know, it's your first organization. It's the, the people you remember the most. It's, it's the guys that, you know, you always wanted to be around. And, uh, you know, to, to have the Giants retire my number was absolutely breathtaking i mean you know being out on that field was was fabulous and and i had a ball so yeah i uh the video that uh i posted a video of you i think it's about a 15 second video when you said uh you know, you're part of san francisco and you're always be a giant and you did the fist pump man i got i get chills when i watch it <laughs> i was like i'm having will on today check this video out it's like yeah, man, that's that's what it's all about. That's the Will Clark I remember. That fist pump, that that uh, the intensity that you brought every day on the field when when you stepped across that line, um, and the umpire said play ball, man, it was on. And after, yeah, no friends. I mean, it was war. It's yeah. a lot different than what I see now. It was we were not friends. There were no hugging going on out in center field before the game. Um, that was frowned upon, and now you see there's a big party out in center field before the game, and everybody's <laughs> hugging and kissing and all this stuff. And it's like, man, we weren't friends when we played. It was it was war. We were getting paid. We're professional athletes. Our job is to win baseball games. Bottom line, and that we took that serious. We took that to heart. And I don't know that I see that as much anymore today. Oh no, you don't. You don't see that at all. Um, I mean, I can just flat out tell you that, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that the veterans that I was around, they always, they always said, they're like, Hey, you we're going out there to kick his ass. We, we don't want, we don't want to like, you know, give him any, anything to even remotely use against us. And so, you know, you did not, we called it fraternization. You did not fraternize. And, you know, it's just the way it was. I mean, here's another one for you. And, and I, I, tell, I tell a lot of people this story. Um, you know, Nolan Ryan blew out his elbow uh, the year before I got to Texas. So that was, that was 93. So I got there in 94. And Nolan used to come around the clubhouse all the time. And 
he used to he used to walk around the clubhouse and walk right by me and not say a freaking word. And so some of the guys in the clubhouse started like paying attention to it, and they like, "Hey, what's going on with you and Nolan?" And I go, "Hey, you know what? It's a it's a pitcher hitter thing." I said, "It's it's no big deal for me." I said because you know that's the way he was taught. He was taught no fraternization, and this guy beat on me, and I don't like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't I didn't even realize that that. Yep. Uh, Yep. Yeah, and he was, uh, I mean, you're both proud guys and obviously he's a, a legend and you're a legend. And yeah. Yeah. Hey, we don't and, have to and you know, we walk. had, yeah, we had that respect from a, you know, hitter pitcher thing, but you know, he didn't want to fraternize even when he worked for the Rangers. So, I mean, I, I didn't really worry about it too much. A lot of people were all worried about it and I go, I go, y'all, y'all are really looking into this a little bit more than what I am because Nolan and I were brought up kind of the same way. You don't go out there and mess around with the other team. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, ha- I have to admit something to you. Uh, um, I told you a little bit earlier that uh, if it wasn't for this one other player, you would be my favorite Clark of all time. For the- <laughs> Growing up. In the Bay Area, huge Giants fan. I mean, I, I go all the way back to when Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and those guys were there. Juan Marichal and um, my favorite player was Jack the Ripper. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, so Jack Clark, which is which is who uh, Jeff's talking about. Jack's a big old dude. He's like six four, six five. I mean, really put together well. And <clears throat> his big thing was, believe it or not, he used a little bitty bat. He and I used the same kind of model bat. He used the C two seventy one, and his was thirty four inches and thirty one ounces. So, as you know, seeing this big old fella swing that thing around, it was like swinging a toothpick. And uh, he had little bitty short arms. And so, one of the things <clears throat> that we even talked about, we even talked about it in the pitchers' meetings, were since he's got the short arms, he actually like swings over the top of a lot of stuff on the inside corner. And so we used to just, I mean, legitimately just throw him sinker after sinker after sinker on the inside corner. And he just kept pulling it down, down the first baseline or excuse me, down the third baseline foul. And, uh, that's how we pitched Jack Clark just cause he had the, the short arms. Yeah. He took a hack. Oh yeah. That's why he <laughs> called That's why he was called a ripper. He, if he caught a hold of it with that little bitty C-271, that son of a gun got after it, pal. Yeah, I want to. I want to see what his exit below was. Yeah, no, no, yeah. All you, all you dummies that believe in that exit below, y'all kiss my ass. <laughs> I actually talked to uh, one of my old teammates yesterday. He's still managing in the minor leagues, and um, he's having a lot of issues with uh, some of the analytics guys coming around. And he he told me the other day they won a ball game on a blooper, uh, like a check swing blooper, and then like another little blooper that was 50 miles an hour uh, exit below and he said something to the analytics guys and says you know what that uh you know how we won that game 50 mile per hour exit below so i'm tired don't i'm tired of hearing your crap about exit below said, well well i mean for development purposes aren't we trying to encourage these guys to hit the ball hard he goes yes but we'll also you know you want you know how to spell fun in this game it's w-i-n we won the ball game yeah, he cares how hard the ball was hit, and you see it a lot. I see it all the time now. Somebody the other day hit a, you know, hundred and twenty something mile an hour. Oh, it was the kid from uh, Pittsburgh, O'Neill Cruz hits a hundred and twenty two point four mile an hour linea to right field that he thought was a homer, and he pimped it and jogged to first and got a hundred and twenty two point four mile an hour single off the wall, and they're praising him. Yeah. Yeah, like like he did something special, you know? Yeah, it's the same as a blukey man. It's Gary yeah. Lewis. It's a single. Yeah. It doesn't matter how hard. And there's nope. not one player that I know of that would rather hit a hundred and twenty mile an hour line out than a fifty mile an hour, fifty mile per hour blooper for a hit. Not That's one. That's right. That's right. Hey, look, you know, another thing too, I mean you know, cause, cause I get this question all the time, you know I mean? I, I get that question from all of like minor league kids that I work with that they come up and they go, 
Mr. Clark, where's your average exit velo? I said, excuse me? They go, your average exit velo. I go, well, if I hit the shit out of one and I took a left-hand turn at first base, I said, it was pretty hard. If I hit the shit out of one and I took a right-hand turn at first base and I went back to the dugout, it wasn't hard enough. (laughs) That's good. That's good. I mean – I don't know what you, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know what you think of this. I saw a video the other day, this kid, high school kid, you know, more power to him. The kid's working hard. He's lifting weights and he has one of those pocket radars and he's hitting the ball off a tee and he over swings and rolls over a ground ball to short and says 93 miles per hour. And to me, that's what's wrong with this because I work with some kids that did a camp and they had the blast motion thing on the bottom of the the bat and I asked this kid I was like when you go in there with this on your bat are you trying to swing harder to get a higher reading he's like yeah I was like well that defeats the purpose of this because I see these swings off a tee I know you've never swung 100% hitting a ball off a tee in your life because I see the video that you still post a video of you will I think in your lodge it's a nice smooth fluid swing level just trying to get the barrel to the ball. So these kids are swinging out of their ass to get a high reading and it's not helping them. No, I totally agree with you. And so, you know, like you said, you know, if if you do follow me or whatever, you know, I was giving a kid a lesson during COVID and I'm probably going, I don't know, 70%, maybe 75%. And to do exactly what you just said, you know, I want to get nice and smooth I want to get my timing. I want to make clean contact. And then what you do is you start ramping up the effort level as you are taking batting practice, getting ready for the game. But when you are in the cage and you're working on things, because I'm thinking the whole time I'm working, right? And so when you are thinking, you know, you're not necessarily concentrating on the ball 100%. You're thinking about, all right, my hand's got to be here. My feet has to be here. I got to get the elbow here, whatever. And so to watch, you know, some of, as you well know, some of the kids now and and kind of what you're talking about, you know, this bullshit that they put on the knob and a bat and how I get to the ball. and whatever. It's like, dude, you still haven't figured out that, hey, look, I got to catch it clean. That's first off. You know, you can't keep hitting stuff off your hands, can't keep hitting it off the end of the bat. You got to catch it on a barrel every time, you know? Yep, every time. And if you hit the tee uh, with the bottom of your bat, it's because you hit under the ball. And yep. you should be able to hit that ball without the tee even moving if you have, a, you know, at least a halfway decent tee and drive that ball to the back of the, of the cage. I totally agree with you, brother. Totally agree with you. So, you know, that's another thing, too. You know, I watch these guys hit in the cage, and we even talked about it. And this this goes back to what we are trying to do when we're working in the cage, all right? I am – if I hit a ball in a batting cage and it hits the top part of the batting cage, I'm pissed mm-hmm. because that's a routine out in a game, all right? I am trying to work on hitting everything head high – and hitting absolute rocket after rocket after rocket. And so, you know, you go back to kind of what you were talking about, you know, with the exit velocity and stuff like that, uh, or the launch angle or whatever. I, You know, I tell everybody in their grandma, I said, I said, if you looked at Tony Gwynn's launch angle, you'd be like, oh, he, he sucks. But yet, it, yet he's only got 3,300 hits because all he did was hit one hop freaking rockets up the middle. And so his launch angle is minus five. Yeah, you know, I hear a lot. A lot now. I think one of the problems we see in our game is that everybody's being encouraged to hit the ball in the air. And um, for me, the easiest outs on defense were a pop up and a can of corn fly ball. And the people that are saying that hard ground balls are outs in the big leagues because these guys are are too good are full of shit. Because I would take a hard ground ball off of lazy fly ball or a pop-up in the infield a hundred times out of a hundred. Yep. Puts yep, pressure you're on right. the defense. Puts pressure on the defense. And, and you know, you remember in Arlington, man, how fast that infield was, especially the old Arlington Stadium. You hit a freaking ball on the ground, that sucker's getting through quite yep. often. Yep. 
And that's why that's why people ask me, you know, what were some of your better ballparks to play in? And I'd tell them I'd, I love like San Diego because Tony Gwynn had the freaking grass cut like it was a carpet and that ball just shot through there. All you had to do is make good, solid contact. You got a knock. Yeah. The old Arlington Stadium, uh, it was faster um, than AstroTurf. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And the idea that ground balls are automatic outs, I can remember some of the ground balls I had to catch when Kevin Brown was throwing his bowling ball sinkers and dudes were just rolling over to me. And those ground balls weren't easy outs. Those circles will eat you up in a second. Yes, they would. In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Take the easy pop-up over that ground ball, I mean, every time. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, and then that's the thing, you know, when you are, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, when you're on the field, you know, and you're practicing, you know, your fungo hitter that's hitting you fungos, yeah, he's going to catch a few clean, but he's going to roll over a few, and then you, you can ask him to hit you high choppers and stuff like that. And that's how, you know, we got a chance to work on that stuff even before we got on the field. Yeah, and every time you went on the road to a new ballpark, you had to adjust to that ballpark. You had to go. I remember going, uh, I played a, a little bit of outfield in my career, and we go to Minnesota or Fenway Park, and I'd have to go out before batting practice and roll some balls down the line in the corner, see how it reacted. So if it happens in the game, I'm not surprised by it. I'm prepared. That's that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And and we in in San Francisco, this is this is kind of funny, but we in San Francisco, uh, the the facade there in right field is a is a false front. So when you hit it, it just dies. All right. Everybody thinks it's bricks. It's it's not. It's it's like plywood. And so it, it just drops and people are like. Man, I didn't know that ball was going to drop like that. Said, yeah, because you don't go out there and practice it, dumbass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was just part of the job, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. your outfield instructor would, would say, hey, all right, we got to go out here and test the green monster. Most people probably don't know that a fly ball off the green monster, because it's so deadened, almost goes straight down. So if yeah. you're too far away from it, it's going to go straight down and hit the track and then bounce high in the air over your head. It's a for sure double, could be more. So when I, the few times I played in, in Fenway and left, I mean, you had to be on the dirt part of the warning track within 10 feet of the green monster on a 25-foot high ball off the wall because it was going to hit and come almost straight down to you. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I remember one time I actually uh, held a guy. Remember Kilvio Veras, the little leadoff hitter, second baseman for the Braves? I do. Yeah, he uh, he hit a ball off the wall leading off the game, and I caught it off the wall and held him to a single. I was like, hell yeah. But I would have never done that <laughs> if he wasn't prepared. But here's here's another thing. I mean, you know, and and this absolutely floors me. It happened last night, too. I was watching I was watching the Giants game. It happens last night. You know, we would always have not only hitters meetings where we went over all of the opposition pitchers, starters and relievers. So when you walked up to home plate, you had a pretty good idea what this guy was going to throw, all right? Then on top of that, and this is the deciding factor, if you turn around and you watch him, he has eight warm-up pitches. He's going to throw all eight of them. He's going to mix in a few breaking balls. He's going to throw a few fastballs. If his breaking ball, if he bounces three of them in a row, there ain't no way I'm looking for a breaking ball up there. You know, he's pretty much telling me I, I don't have command of that right now. and. So now, you know, with the modern day players, they have the same thing. They go over these freaking hitters and these pitchers and they have these meetings and all that. And the first guy comes out the bullpen, they go walking over and some guy with an iPad comes up to him and goes, this is what he throws. And hey, were you not paying attention in the meeting we just had an hour ago? Plus, on top of that, he's getting ready to throw eight warm up pitches. Pay attention, you jackass. Yeah, I, I don't think they even try to remember anymore because I can remember. 25 years ago i've been retired for 20 years when did you retire what was your last year i retired in in 2000 so i've been retired 23 years almost i guarantee you if you went up there and faced jack mcdowell right now you wouldn't need to look at an ipad you would know what he throws what's he got he got fastball split and his third pitch is a breaking ball there you go go get him yeah and if you faced uh 
Chuck Finley, you knew he was going to do what to try and get you out. I know he was going to do it against me. He was going to try to bounce his forkball um, with two strikes. You I got that, that right. I remember that 22 years ago, 20 years ago. Why, why can't these guys remember from game to game? Yeah, no, it's it's hysterical. I mean, Fry Daddy, it really is. I mean, you know, I mean, come on, man. We just had this freaking meeting. Did you not pay attention? Come on. Get your head out of your ass. Let's go. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's frustrating. I mean, I love baseball, Wilbur. Uh, it's it's so hard for me to watch. I get just I get so frustrated watching. I get angry. It's like, what are we doing? And and I know you had an opportunity um uh, talk i think you went uh during the mlb draft this year and had an opportunity to talk to uh rob manford about some of the rules changes he's already made and some of the potential rules changes and uh, i don't think that you know the objective was originally to speed up the game he's just making the game more boring and and harder to watch and if if guys like you and i have a hard time watching it baseball should be concerned because we love baseball yeah. Yeah, no. And then and then to to I just put it bluntly, I mean they babyfy in the sport. I mean, you can't go out of your way and make contact at second base. You gotta go in straight over the top of the bag. You can't, you know, go around and catcher and you gotta go straight in and just all these little stupid rule changes and and then the electronics that are in the sport and all that sort of stuff. Pretty soon here, I'm telling you right now, the the way that this is going, they're gonna try to get the freaking umpires out the game. I'm you know, and then oh, the umpires got the union and all that sort of stuff. But that's the way this stupid ass game is headed. Yeah, the the uh the electronic strike zone. And from, I know for a fact when I faced certain guys that the strike zone was going to be bigger. If I faced a, a Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin or David Cohn or Kevin Apier, never faced Nolan because we were teammates, but he's going to get a bigger strike zone because he's been in the league for 15 years. He's got seniority and he friggin' earned it. Now, I didn't like it when they called pitches off the strike zone, off the plate off me, but I knew it was part of the deal. And with this strike zone, they have the electronic strike zone thing or the thing they show on TV. There's balls that are missing by a fraction of an inch that they're calling balls that I know every single one of those was a strike when we played. Yep, you're right. You're right. I I, I actually said that to uh, to my wife yesterday. I was like, that would have been a strike back in my day. And she's like, well, how could you hit it? And I said, well, we moved around the batter's box. And I, I had this argument with uh, Brandon Crawford, you know, uh, uh, matter of fact, it was last year. He goes, he goes, you couldn't hit in our day. And I go, excuse me? He goes, yeah, you couldn't hit in our day because, you know, th- these guys throw too hard. I go, you don't think we didn't have guys that threw hard? I said, let me tell you something right now. And I, I flipped it around on him. I go, you could not hit in our day. I said, because you got this big ass white box that's on the TV and the ball has to come through that big-ass white box. I said, we had six inches off the plate with Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and, you know, all those kind of guys. And like you talked about, David Cohn, you just keep naming the names. Dwight Gooden. And, you know, these guys are pumping stuff in there, you know, 95, 96 miles an hour, and they're getting six inches off the plate. You better move around the batter's box. Otherwise, you ain't going to hit, son. Yeah, I remember, I remember a game in Detroit when Roger Clemens struck out 20. Uh, Detroit Tigers, one of the biggest strike zones I'd ever seen, except for that day LeVon Hernandez had Eric Gregg behind the plate. Oh, God, that was that was horrendous. Clemens, three, I think three hitters and the manager got thrown out from Detroit because there were pitches that uh, basically if a Hasselman could catch it in the air, it was a strike. <laughs> I think they wanted Roger to get 20. But, I mean, there were some pitches that I'm out in the field going, oh, my God, there's no way that's a strike. And they're like, yeah. Is up. Yep. No, it's, it's 90s, amazing. It's on high 90s, 96 yeah. to 98 with a fourth yeah. ball. Yep. And he'd also uh, give you the bow tie if you hit him too well. Yep. 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 Well, I, I, I won't keep you too much longer. I uh, I really appreciate you being on here, Will. I want to I wanted to ask you another thing about um, a lot of the stuff I do on social media is geared to towards educating parents because we know that uh, – there's a lot of people out there teaching stuff to kids that have no business doing that. And, and for whatever reason, parents feel compelled to bring their kids to these hitting gurus and pitching gurus and fielding gurus. And I don't understand it, but 
what advice would you give to parents that, uh, you know, when they're taking their little Johnny, 12-year-old, to a swing guru, and they show up, and the swing guru has his hat on backwards and says, all right, it'll be 75 bucks. Uh, go over to the wall and grab yourself a PVC pipe. Meet me in the cage. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of right there with you. I mean, you know, I, I sit there, and I, I, look at, I look at some of this stuff, and I go, you have got to be kidding me. And, but I mean, Hey, that's kind of what these moms and dads are, are dealing with now. And evidently they're okay to deal with it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've, I was always taught that unless you did the sport, how can you teach it? You know? And that's why, you know, you, you see, you know, the little videos of me in the cage and stuff like that. The reason that I'm swinging in the cage is because I I firmly believe I cannot teach it unless I can do it, and I worked my butt off as did you to become a pro, and I'm talking about a major leaguer. and And this is another thing for everybody in the audience while we're talking about that. People do not know how good a major leaguer is. All right. All you yahoos that hit golf balls and you look at, you know, the Tiger Woods and the, the Shambos and all of that of the world. OK, you do not know how good those guys are. They would just beat the living dog meat out of you. And it's the same thing with a major league baseball player. You guys that, that are in high school or college or whatever, you're nowhere near how skilled we are. And so why don't you pay attention to the guys that are extremely skilled and maybe you can learn something to put into your game. And then that's what, you know, these little kids that are going out there, you know, they're eight, nine years old and getting hitting lessons and batting lessons and go out there and have a Coke and freaking whack away at it. Because guess what? Until, until you get a little strength and until your balls drop, you ain't going to be able to hit nothing anyway. Cause guess what? The bat's swinging you, you ain't swinging it. Well, we got to hit that ball in the air. I, I love when they teach in these 10-year-olds to, to lift the ball. You know, the field's 200 feet, and it's like, yeah, when he turns uh, 13 and the field's, uh, the bases are 90 feet and the mound's, the mound's 60 feet, 6 inches, where, where are those 225-foot home runs going to end up? Yeah, no. No, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. I remember uh, when the first time that I can remember playing on the 90-foot bases on a real, you know, regulation size field i hit a linea to right field with a with aluminum bat man i was so pumped and and uh i was about 10 feet from first and the right fielder who was my neighbor this punk kid i really didn't like he had a great arm he hosed me out at first base by 10 feet and i was like holy shit i was like that's supposed to be a hit i just i did everything right and now i'm going back to the dugout embarrassed yeah. we got hosed at first base because the bases are so far <laughs> You're like, God damn it! I had to run a long freaking way down here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so uh, before I let you go, I just want to know what uh, what else you do uh, in your spare time. I know you've uh, connected with my buddy Ricky Rona a little bit. He's the big hunter. Yeah. You yeah. Got to get together sometime, have a chance to do some hunting. But what else you do with your uh, spare time? You play golf. Uh, you know what? I'm a I'm a I'm a okay golfer. I'm not the greatest golfer in the world. I'm. I'm the guy that I enjoy playing scrambles and making sure the beer lady comes around every few holes. You know, <laughs> well, I'm that guy. Uh, I'm, I'm fun to play with because I know that I'm not Tiger Woods. I don't stand above the ball and freaking, oh, it's going to break this way. It's going to break that way. No, I get up there and I hit the son of a bitch and I'm like, all right, where's the beer lady? And <laughs> so that's how I play golf. Uh, like you said, I'm a big outdoorsman, hunting and fishing. Uh, went fishing not too long ago. Uh, this weekend starts up dove season, uh, not only in Texas, but also Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, the following weekend starts up teal season, which is a duck. And the whole month of September is alligators down here in Louisiana. So I'll be busy the whole month of September. Ooh, that sounds fun. Alligators. Yep. Yep. A lot of fun. Well, so, uh, back to golf real quick before I let you go. Um, did you ever, uh, talk to Dougie Witt about how he hit the golf ball so straight? I did not. Yeah, he had a tub of Vaseline in the basket in the back of his golf cart that I saw him one day. I was like, what are you doing? He goes, oh, wheeze. He goes, put a little bit of this Vaseline on the, the face of your driver and it takes a spin off. You can hit it straight. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I know you can't imagine Dougie Witt. Oh was, my God, I can imagine that. How much we love Dougie and how Dougie was. Uh, I mean, Dougie was one of us. He was like a player to us. Not yeah. he was like a bullpen catcher. We treated him like he was one of us. Yep, yep, and <laughs> I can't believe he dropped that one on you. It's like, yeah, put a little Vaseline on it. Hey, hey, don't think yeah. I used it. <laughs> you ain't cheating. You ain't trying. That's right. That's right. Well, Will, I would uh, like to say thank you very much for taking the time in the middle of your day to be on here. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to keep fighting for the game on social media, doing some videos. I know uh, I know we, we both feel the same about where the game's headed and that we we're trying to, to get it turned back around at least somewhat to where it was when we played. But uh, I really want to say thank you very much. And you were a great teammate and a great friend, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Jeff, my pleasure, man. And, uh, you know, keep, keep fighting a good fight. Cause, uh, as you well know, I mean, the, the stuff that we're seeing on an everyday basis is not good baseball. And, uh, you know, I think that this game deserves a lot better. And, uh, you know, as long as, as long as I'm out on the field, I'm going to be teaching it the way it's supposed to be taught. I'm not teaching all of this bullshit that everybody and their grandma buying into now i'm with you man and uh remember to hang on for a quick second at the very end everybody that was will clark my teammate great player um giants retired his number number 22 um well deserved and uh it's my pleasure having you on wilbur thank you brother jeff fry signing off for the she gone podcast she gone Hey.